Today we're going to talk about, in the conclusion to our little three-part series on some of the doctrines of our church, we're going to talk about what happens when a person dies. And someone may be wondering, why are we talking about this topic? And I'll get to that in just a few minutes on why we are talking about this. For some of you, this will obviously be review, and review is not necessarily a bad thing. For some of you, this may be completely new. I know we have a few guests here with us today. So I hope that whatever camp you're in, you'll, you'll hear this and understand the significance and the importance of this question of what happens when we die. I want to share with you what we as Seventh-day Adventists believe and teach about what a person happens to a person when they die, and it comes from the scriptures. And the best place to start with that answer is to go directly to Jesus. And so uh, we will go to John chapter 11, the book of John chapter 11. If you go a little over two-thirds of the way through your Bible and then you hit Matthew, Mark, or Luke, John is right after that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This section of Scripture... The beginning of John chapter 11 introduces a story that centers basically around a man by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus was a man from the town of Bethany, a town that Jesus passed through on multiple occasions in his ministry. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. There are other stories about this family in the Bible. They are, they are a well-covered family in the scriptures. And these three people, we learn right away, are are significant to Jesus. Of course, everybody is significant to Jesus, but Jesus had a special uh, friendship and and relationship with these three individuals. John chapter 11, verse 5 tells us that now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Like I said, Jesus loves everybody, but this is indicating here in context this this special relationship. And the story tells us that Jesus and his disciples are are some ways away doing ministry in another town, uh, at least a couple days away in another town, and the news comes to them that Lazarus, this this very close friend of Jesus, this very close friend of the disciples, is very sick. And when Jesus learns this, we read a, a line that seems very strange. The Bible tells us that Jesus learns that his friend is sick, and upon hearing the news of Lazarus's illness, the Bible says Jesus stays two days, and this is the interesting word to me, longer in the place where he was. In other words, maybe he wasn't planning on staying that long, but, but now that he's heard that his friend is sick, he's actually staying two days longer in this place where he was. He doesn't rush to help him, but in that delay, we discover that Lazarus dies. And here is where Jesus teaches us something about the death, about death and, and what we as Seventh-day Adventists believe. John chapter 11 and verse 11, the Bible tells us, Jesus said to them, after, after they've done their ministry, Jesus says to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He is talking about Lazarus' death, as we'll see in just a moment, but his disciples don't realize this. 
His disciples don't realize this. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. They understand what all of us understand. When one of my kids is sick, we oftentimes will tell them, you're going to go to bed a little bit earlier tonight because you need the rest, right? When someone's sick, we tell them, well, maybe you should go lay down because you need the rest. We understand that sleep, that rest helps people recover. And so Jesus tells them that, that, that Lazarus is asleep, and they say, well, then let's not go wake him up because... He's getting better then. He'll, this will help him to recover. And the Bible, they don't understand that Jesus is actually talking about death. And then the Bible clarifies this. Now Jesus, verse 13, had spoken of his death, of Lazarus' death. But they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And right there is the summation of what we believe and what the Bible teaches happens when a person dies. They sleep. They sleep. This doesn't mean that their body sleeps and, and some other part of them goes on in a conscious state elsewhere. In fact, the Bible tells us the exact opposite of that. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, a book written by what we say is one of the wisest men to ever, men to ever live, King Solomon. And we read this in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know not anything. And they have no, reward, no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And then verse 6, listen to this. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. These verses tell us in Ecclesiastes chapter 9... That the dead, not only do they not know anything, but, but they don't have any feelings. They don't have any feelings. So there's, there's not some, some part of them that continues to live on in some other place, feeling and thinking and having these emotions. The Bible tells us they have neither love, they have neither hate, they have neither envy. There's not a loved one looking down and, and trying to help guide us and direct us in this world because the Bible tells us that, that, that those who die have no share in what happens here in this world. In other words, they have, they have no part that what is happening in this world after they are dead. Just like when you are asleep, you know nothing. The Bible tells us death is like sleep where we know nothing. Now let me ask you a question. Does time Slow down or speed up when you sleep? Speed up. You guys are all obviously not good with time, all right? First service didn't do much better either. It's a trick question, folks. Time stays the same when you sleep. You understand this, right? I hope, I hope everyone understands this logic. How many of you have graduated from, from anything? <laughs> time stays the same when you sleep, folks. It doesn't speed up, all right? It stays the same. But it feels like it speeds up, right? I mean, how many of us go to sleep and we wake up and we say, morning's here already? Have you ever said that before? Did you say that this morning? <laughs> morning's here already? We, we lament. Really, it's already morning. Because when we sleep, it feels like time has just jumped by. It feels like it's sped up. Because why? Because during the night, we know nothing. We have a memory when we sleep. When we fall asleep, we wake up and we know nothing. Now, much of modern Christendom believes that the body does die and sleep, but a soul lives on. 
Oftentimes, family members believe their loved ones that died have gone to a better, to be, as people say, in a better place. But again, Jesus told us death is sleep. And just as we know nothing when we are truly asleep, someone who's dead knows nothing. There's not some part of them that's conscious somewhere else recognizing everything that is going on. This includes not being in heaven, worshiping God. Psalm 115, the book of Psalms Psalm, and the 115th Psalm. Psalm 115, verse 17, reads like this. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. The Bible tells us that, that not only do we not know what's going down here on this earth, but there's no one up there praising God after they have died. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. The silence is describing, again, that sleep. And even the best of us, there's some of you in here that are just amazing people. There's some of us that are okay, but, but there are some of you that are amazing people. And even the best of us, when we die, will simply sleep. We won't go straight up to heaven. In the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to non-believers, people that are not believers in Christ, and he is trying to make the point to them, he's trying to explain to them that the prophecies that speak of the resurrection, the prophecies that testify of the resurrection are actually talking about Christ and not of anyone else, not of another human being. And he references specifically a prophecy by King David, a prophecy that is also found in the book of Psalms. He's referencing specifically a prophecy about, uh, that King David gave, and he's saying this is not about David. Now let us acknowledge that, that David had his flaws, right? David had his flaws, and if you read the story, we realize that. But when it comes to the end of David's life, and God looks at the big picture of everything, what does God say? God says, to, says to, to humanity through the scriptures, here was a man after my own what? Heart. Now we should all celebrate that because it reminds us that God doesn't see us and all our mistakes over time, but rather he looks at everything and, and if we've accepted him and we've asked forgiveness, all he sees is that we are people after his own heart. And even in other parts of scripture, he says to the other kings that have come after him, why are you not following in all your way, me in all your ways as your father David did? Now, if we read the story, we go, wait a second, he followed you in all the ways, what are you talking about? He didn't follow you, but, but that's what God sees. You know who reminds God of our sins? Us. We're the ones that remind God of our sins. God, when he forgives, he literally forgets and he casts them out to the depths of the sea. That is good news. But, but here, we have, here we have David. So David is someone that God says he is a man after my own heart. I'd like for another human being to say that at my funeral. If any of you are there, you can go ahead and remember that. Uh, but, but much less to have God himself say this, that this is a man after my own heart. We would do, deduce by this statement, a man after God's own heart, a man who God says has followed me in all his ways and honored me in all his ways, we would assume that, that surely if someone is going to live on, if someone's going to have their, their soul go up in heaven, that, that surely it would be David. But here is what Peter tells us in the book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. He says to them, or verse 25, uh, yeah, verse 29, brothers, 
I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And then verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Look, his tomb is here, his body's here, he's still here with us today. Oh, and by the way, no part of him went up to heaven. Verse 34, he did not ascend into the heavens. Why? Because Peter understood this. When we die, we sleep. We know nothing. But we only sleep for a time, and for those who are sleeping in death, it goes by like that. But we only sleep for a time. A lot of times we look at the scripture in 1 Thessalonians that talks about the resurrection, but, but I like the text in 1 Corinthians, which was also part of our responsive reading today, 1 Corinthians 15, because it, it gives this nice little timeline. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse uh, 20, the Bible tells us this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's that word again, sleep, describing death as sleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse, 20, verse 21. Now verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And now listen to this. But each in his own order, verse 23, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and then the Bible says, then comes the end. Then comes the end. Jesus has been resurrected, the first fruits of those that fall asleep in Jesus. The Bible says then, as in other words, it has not happened yet, then the, 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 the righteous in Christ will be raised to life. And when does it happen? At his coming. And then the end. So at Jesus' second coming, the righteous will wake up from their sleep, their death, and this end happens right at the end of all things. This is what we as Seventh-day Adventists teach. This is what we believe the Bible teaches about what happens when a person dies. That they sleep. They know nothing. It goes by like that. And the next thing they know, they're resurrected at Jesus' second coming. Now there might be someone in here that this is the first time that you heard this. There might be someone that's watching us that this is the first time that you have heard this. And obviously I can't answer every question that you may have and questions are logical if this is one of the first times you're hearing this because you, you, if you were raised with something and, and someone tells you something different, there's questions that arise. If you are here in the sanctuary, you can let me know. You can let me know on the connection card or let one of our pastors know. We'd be happy to talk with you more. If you're watching online, you can email us and there's availability of our emails there online or Hope Channel. You can call the number that's there on the screen. But for others of you that, that already know this, that are in here, and maybe this is embedded into your belief system, you may be wondering, why are we reviewing this? Why do we just review this? I already understand this. I already know this. It's ingrained in my beliefs. There's two reasons why we are reviewing this today. And the first is because of presumption. It's because of presumption. I'm afraid that we are presuming that this truth is being passed on to the next generation simply because it's ingrained in our beliefs. It's a presumption. 
Myself, Pastor Andrea, Pastor Lerone, and other teachers I have spoken with at our school are surprised by how many of our young people don't understand this teaching. Don't embrace this teaching. Historically, in my ministry at least, one of the briefest studies with a young person who was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home would be the study on what happens when a person dies. You ask a little kid, what happens when someone dies? And they tell you, and you ask why, and they explain to you, to, to you why it happens, why they believe that. And they could articulate what they believe. You'd say, what happens when someone dies? They tell you what happens. Why do you believe that? Boom, study's over. They've got it down already. They understand it. They know it. Someone has taught it to them. This is no longer the case. Pastor Andrea, Pastor Ron, and I are shocked at how many studies we have with children raised in Adventist homes that believe their family members are not sleeping but are in heaven. This is from elementary age all the way up into college. So I today am taking some time to remind us as adults that simply because we believe something and we know why we believe something, we still need to teach it to our children. We still need to teach it to our children. They're not getting it by osmosis, folks. Do not present, presume that they know simply because you do. Listen, the influence of media is vast. And if our kids are spending a lot of time uh, with, with, on, on t in the TV, on the internet, on video games... Their truths are, are being shaped by those things that are contradicting what the Bible teaches or alluding to contradictions of what the Bible teaches. This is what our children will believe in the absence of direct teaching. They will pick it up. They'll believe something. Our natural default method as humans, not even children, just our natural default method as humans is that if, if we don't have some direction in some other way, we will shape our belief around the direction that we desire to go or what we are in taking. Just a little illustration. It wasn't in my original sermon notes, but I'm going to give you this illustration. I think I might have talked about this before. But I was in seventh grade, and I was walking through the mall in, uh, in San Bernardino, California, and I was walking through the mall, and my friend was with me, and he said, hey, Chad, let's get our ear pierced. And I said, it was back in the day when a guy only pierced one ear, and he said, hey, Chad, let's get our ear pierced. I said, I'm not going to get my ear pierced. He said, it's only $5. So I'm not going to get my ear pierced. He's like, what, are you a chicken? And so I said, okay, let's go get our ear pierced. You know, that's all, that was all it took was just, hey, are you a chicken? So we walked into this place, and this was back in the day as well where they didn't have to have parental approval to, to pierce seventh grader kids' ears. And so we pierced my, his ear, and I got my ear pierced, and we walked out of there, and I had this nice turquoise earring that I used to wear. Can't you see? Can you picture it? Do you think I look good in a turquoise <laughs> earring? So... Uh, and my older sister, she helped me out because uh, in my house, my parents were very clear. My older sister, you're not getting your ears pierced until you get out of the house. If you choose to make that decision once you leave the house, that's fine. But um, so she didn't have her ears pierced, but she helped me. We, we got some wire cutters and we cut the back off of an earring. And so it was just that little stub. And so every night I would, or every time I'd go home, I'd put that, that, that stub in and then I'd just break it through just a little bit. At the, uh, at the end of the night, I mean, in the next morning on my way to school, when my sister was driving to school, I, and I put the earring back in. Well, I remember one Friday afternoon, 
We were at Harris's in Redlands, California, the Harris's department store, if you've been there before. And we were, my mom was having me try on new Sabbath pants. And I was putting on these new Sabbath pants and I step out of the dressing room and she looks at me and she goes, and she reaches for my ear and I just had that little tiny post in there. She goes, you got something on your ear? And she reaches for it and she feels it and suddenly her eyes get wide and she pulls thing falls out. I catch it. She goes, get in there and get your clothes back. Get changed right now. Get your clothes on. I go in, and of course, I am who I am, so I try to put it back in, but now the hole's too big, so it just falls out and won't stay in anymore. We come out, and she said, what were you thinking? And she, she said, you're going to have to tell your father. I said, can't, can't you tell him? <laughs> and she said, no. And she said, no. But I had come up with a sound argument for why I could get my ear pierced, and you're going to love this, right? So I call my dad. I call him from a payphone. This was that day. We had no cell phones. I wasn't going to tell him in person. I'm not dummy. So I call him from a payphone. I call my dad, and I said, hey, dad, I got to tell you something. I pierced my ear. And he said, why would you do that? What would make you think that that was okay? And I said to him, you've never told me that I couldn't. This is my sound argument. Now listen, it gets, it gets even better. I said, you've only told my sisters, but you've never said anything to me. Now, this is not the best parenting moment, but I'll tell you anyways. My dad said to me, well, that's because I didn't think you were that stupid. Um, and he said, I'll see you when you get home. And that was the end of the conversation. But here's the thing. In my mind, I literally like continued to use that argument with them for a while. You never said anything to me. We naturally will, without the, in the absence of some sort of direction, in the absence of, of, of direct teaching on certain things, we will create our own path as we desire. And that's what we're seeing happen with our young people. Not because they're bad kids, not because they don't want to embrace truth, but in the absence of us talking about it, thinking, well, I know it, so obviously my kids know it, they're missing it. The second reason, and I know I'm teaching, this may be a teaching for some of you for the first time, but for those of you who this is review, the reason why I'm reviewing it with us is because unfortunately, oftentimes what is not taught or emphasized can at times be considered unimportant or of no value. What is not taught or emphasized can be considered unimportant. And here's where I want to spend the last few minutes of our time together. I am alarmed by the growing sentiment with not only our young people that believe this, but also our older, some of our older members that believe this as well. Some people that understand this doctrine and believe this doctrine, but amongst these group of people, that know that when a person dies, they sleep until Jesus comes, I'm alarmed by the growing sentiment, which is this. But does it really matter what you believe about when a person dies, followed by, if it gives them comfort to believe their family member is in heaven, then what is the big deal? You hear this more and more from people that believe the same way that I do, but they say, what does it matter? 
I was visiting two friends about 16 years ago. They were a husband and a wife, and they had recently graduated from, uh, they were theology majors, and they graduated, and they attended Southern Adventist University with me for part of my time there. They were a little bit younger than me, and they had invited me over to their house because they were trying to, uh, to convince me to join them in an endeavor to start a church outside of the Adventist denomination. They were frustrated with the way things were being ran. I could understand some of their frustrations. They were frustrated with, with some of the, the bureaucracy, and I could understand some of those frustrations. Though don't get excited if you think I may disappear at one point in time. I'm not going anywhere. You can't be a part of the solution too easily outside of the church. But they told me, we still believe the basic same things, and we're still going to teach the basic same things. And I was asking them about specific doctrines, and I asked them about soul sleep. Soul sleep is just obviously the term for people who read too many theology books, but that's the question of what happens when someone dies, and we refer to it as soul sleep. And so I asked them about soul sleep. And my friend, the husband, said, oh, I still believe in soul sleep, but I am not worried if others do or not. I don't think it really matters, he said. Well, in that moment, I knew that I thought that it mattered, but I didn't fully know why. But this morning, I'm going to give you the reasons why I think it matters. Why I think it matters. Four semi-quick reasons why I think it's important for us to understand this truth and why believing this truth still does matter. First of all, it matters because it is what the Bible teaches. For this doctrine and many other things in our world, we should always check ourselves. We should humble ourselves before the word of God and we should be willing to check ourselves when we find ourselves asking the question, well, does this really matter? It is not for us to decide what truths are and are not important to God. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all scripture is breathed by God and is useful for teaching. We should be very mindful of saying, well, this no longer matters to God unless God has clearly said what matters and what does not matter. So we should be careful with this. Reason number two for why it matters what we believe on this subject. Do you realize that the original lie of Satan, the original lie, the original deception of Satan to humanity centered around this topic. It's centered around this topic. All the pain that you experience in your life, all the struggles, have any of you had a hard moment this week? Or any, is, there, is there a part of your heart that is aching for something going on in your life? All of that began on this earth when Satan used this lie about what happens when someone dies to lead into a whole slew of mess that we are in. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter three and verse four and five, the serpent, which was Satan, said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is when he was trying to get her to eat some fruit. And she said, we can't eat of that or else we'll, we can't touch that or else we will die. He said, you will not surely die. And always, I say this every time I talk about this, stop drawing apples. It is not an apple. No one would sin over an apple. It is a mango. I'm sure of it that, uh, that was tempting to her.
But he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. His, his big lie in this whole thing is actually, you will be like God. How will you be like God? Two ways he says that they will be like God. One, you'll be immortal like God. In some form or fashion, you are going to continue to live on. The second lie that he gave is, you are as smart as God, or you will be as smart as God. When we start making ourselves over the authority over what matters and doesn't matter in truth from the Bible, we are living out the latter lie of Satan, that you are as smart as God. You know what, I read this and I don't think it matters anymore. I don't think it is important to God anymore. I don't think the scripture is significant anymore. Unless God has shown us, then we are making ourselves the moral authority over God's word and the moral authority over God. We are as smart as God. We're basically saying, yes, Satan, I agree with you. I will be like God. And when folk believe that some part of them lives on forever in a conscious state, they are embracing the first lie, the, the former lie of Satan. You will be like God in this way. You will also be immortal in and of yourself. I don't know about you, but I think one of the reasons it's important for us to understand this doctrine is I don't want to embrace and or endorse the lies of Satan that have led to so much pain and suffering in my life and led to so much pain and suffering in your lives. Satan used this lie to open up this door to all this pain. I don't want to embrace anything that Satan has used to open up pain in our world. The third reason it matters what we believe on this topic is that we don't want to be deceived by the devil. If a person believes that their loved ones live on in heaven or hell, and they can communicate with them or pray uh, to them in some way, then a person is opening themselves up to, be, to the deceits of the devil. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 the following, do not neglect to show kindness, generosity, hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The Bible is telling us that angels can appear as humans, and we see this in the story of Abraham. Abraham in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, he has three visitors, and two of them are angels. One is the Son of God, of course, but two of them are angels, but he just sees three people. They appear as humans. If this is true for good angels, it is also true for evil angels. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 tells us this, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, he pretends to be something he is not in order to deceive us. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He has this ability to masquerade as something else in order to deceive us. If we believe that, that somehow our family members are up in heaven and that they can communicate with us or they can warn us of something in some ways, we open ourselves up to the deceptions of the devil. I don't want to be deceived. I've had people that I've actually spoken with and they've told me that a family member came to them that had passed away and told them that something no longer mattered. One member I was studying the Sabbath with one time and talking about the significance of the Sabbath, they said they saw it, but they, but they had a dream and this family member came to them in a dream and told them that this was no longer important. You open yourselves up to those deceptions when, when you believe this. This is why believing the right thing on this matters. I don't want to be deceived by the devil, and I know that I'm susceptible to that just as anyone else is, and I don't want anyone else to be deceived by the devil simply because I said, well, this truth is no longer that important. You know what? Believe what you want to believe as long as it makes you feel good. It eventually could lead someone to be deceived by the devil. 
in significant and powerful ways. And finally, the fourth and my final reason on why it matters what we believe about what happens when a person dies is because only God is immortal and he has given pow- the power to overcome the grave only to Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why he is worthy of our worship. And as I look at this world, I see the devil attacking all the reasons that God gives us of why he is worthy to be worshiped, if you think about it. One of the very first ones we learn in the Bible is that, that we are to worship God because he is our creator. He, we are to worship God because he is our creator. And, and we see how the devil attacks that and says, you know, you weren't created special. You're not created in the image of God. You weren't, you weren't made, uh, you weren't divinely made in a special way. Satan says that's not true. And, and people throw that out the window. And now there's that reason, no longer that reason to worship God and to give praise and honor to him. On another side, the Bible tells us that, that God is worthy of our worship because uh, the Lord is worthy of our worship because he is our savior. But the devil goes over and says to someone, well, he can't save you. The things you've done, he can't forgive that. The devil wants you to throw out those things. Well, man, my sins are too big for, for God. And Satan lies to us and he deceives us and he says, that's not a reason to worship him. A third reason, and of course there's many more reasons to worship the Lord, but the Bible tells us another reason that we give honor and glory to God is because he is immortal, and he alone is immortal. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, or verses 14, 15, uh, 13 through 16 actually. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him the honor and eternal dominion amen to him be honor and eternal dominion to the one whom alone is immortal and has given power over to Jesus to overcome the grave and to give power to to us to overcome the grave at his resurrection All these reasons for why we shouldn't worship God are being destroyed by Satan, and this is just one more of them. Ellen White, and I'm paraphrasing from the great controversy, she says that as we teach this, and we teach that, that, that the soul lives on, as this is taught that the soul lives on, then we are making ourselves little gods, basically. No longer is God worthy to be worshipped because he's the only one that's immortal, but, but we are also, and I thought about that when I read that, and this isn't my notes, but I thought about this this morning actually uh, as I was getting ready a lot of funerals I go to we don't talk about how awesome Jesus is that someday he's going to overcome the grave a lot of funerals I've been to we talk about how good this person was and so now they're up in heaven they are so good now they're in heaven and if you're at a conservative church you know now they're up in heaven and they're at the feet of Jesus and if you're at a more progressive church now they're up in heaven and they're surfing on the sea of glass you never been to those funerals? I'm the only one that goes to those funerals. But you know, instead, it's like, God is immortal. And so one day he's gonna call and wake 
that family member up. Not because of them and not because of what they've done, but because of Jesus and what he's done and because he's given power over the grave. These are the four reasons I think why it's important. One is because of what the Bible teaches. Two, because I don't want to embrace any of the lies of Satan. Three, because I don't want to be deceived and I don't want to think that, uh, to, to not teach something because, well, it doesn't really matter. I don't want others to be deceived as well. And four, because it is one of the reasons why God is worthy of our worship, because he alone has immortality, the Bible tells us. Y'all, to believe and to teach that people sleep till Jesus comes is not unimportant. It is very important. And also, folks, to believe and to teach that we sleep until Jesus comes is not bad. In fact, it is very good. It is beautiful. There is nothing wrong with it. I'll close with this illustration. One of my boys has these fits at night. Not, not all the time, but occasionally has these, these fits at night. Like a sleepwalking thing almost. They get up out of bed. They're agitated, crying, maybe talking, frustrated, agitated. And, and it gets pretty intense. And we can hear it in the house. And we'll go in there and, and, and try to calm them down. And until we, we wake them up, we can't actually get them back in bed. And so we're, we're working with them, trying to get them awake. And, and they may have their, uh, he may have his eyes open just a little bit, but, but, but he's not awake. And you can tell that he's not awake. And he's agitated. And he's not answering your questions and, and all of this. And finally, we wake him. You know, we pinch him a little, not abusively, you know, just nicely. Uh, pinch him a little, you know, kind of, come on, come on, wake up, wake up. And all of a sudden, there's a moment when their eyes open up, and you can tell that they're awake now and that they have cognition of what's going on and immediately the the tears stop immediately the tears stop and at first we would say what's wrong what's wrong did you have a bad he'd have no idea what we were talking about why were you crying sometimes i say i'm not crying and he'd like think why are you in my room and he'd walk back and he'd lay down in his bed and go to sleep just like that without anything and the next morning we'd ask him we, we i still do just to have fun with him i'll say to him hey do you remember last night when you got all crazy and not, he has no idea what I'm talking about. Why? Because he's asleep. And all the turmoil and the stress of those moments, because sometimes it can go on four or five minutes. It's stressful for us as parents. It's stressful for his brothers who are waking up. Can you please tell them to be quiet? You know, put their head over the pillow. But all that turmoil and that stress of that, of that moment, he has no recollection of because he's asleep. Because he's asleep. Folks, our loved ones who are sleeping in Jesus, who accepted Jesus as their Savior, those who have fallen asleep in him and are waiting for the resurrection, they are okay. Because all this bad stuff that's happening in the night, all the fits and all the crying and all the sorrow and all the agitation that's happening above them, they know nothing about they know nothing about. And just as with my son, I say the next morning, do you remember what happened last night? He goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Those people, when they, when they wake up on resurrection morning, if we go to them and say, oh man, wasn't that horrible what was taking place in this time? Was that horrible what was happening? They'll say, I don't know what you're talking about. All they'll say is, I see my Jesus. That's not a bad thing. 
That's not a bad thing. They're resting from this awful world. You know, I am grateful that when my time on this earth ends, that I will sleep and I will know nothing till I hear my Savior's voice say, Chad, it's time to get up. And his face will all I see. Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace towards us. We thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for this doctrine that, that, that teaches us that what happens when we die, that you alone are immortal. And we thank you, Jesus, most of all, for the promise that you will wake us up. And that the sorrows and the tragedy and the, the angst of this world that have been going on will, will not even be a memory to us. And all we'll know is the face of our Jesus. Lord, keep us till that day, we pray in your name. Amen.